Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and uh, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5. And I want to begin with uh, three thank yous and an invite this morning, all right? Three thank yous and an invite. Number one, thank you to everybody who helped us uh, make Trunk or Treat happen last Sunday. Uh, it was a great event. It's a great event for our community. Uh, it's a great event to get our community to come onto our campus so that we can minister to them. And uh, thank you for helping us uh, put that on. Thank you to Michelle and her team. And uh, we appreciate our church family a lot for helping us with that. Uh, number two, I want to say thank you for your generosity this year. If you've paid attention to our prayer guides that uh, go out on Wednesdays um, and are part of our service for Wednesday nights, uh, God has just continued to bless our church uh, in just the area of generosity. And as I like to say, and as we say here, God continues to be faithful to us through the faithfulness of the members of this church. So thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your faithfulness. But I want to remind us that years winding down and just want to come alongside of us and say, hey, let's finish strong uh, because the more that God blesses us here at the end of the year, the more uh, ministry opportunities that we can plan for next year. Uh, so I uh, appreciate you in that. And also want to say thank you. Thank you for uh, the cards. Thank you for the message for the gifts, uh, for pastor appreciation this last month that many of you gave to us. Uh, we appreciate y'all. And one of my favorite things is when I read a letter from one of you or a note that says you're praying for us. That means the world to us to know that you are lifting us up in prayer. And then also my favorite thing to read is when you share how this church, God through this church, the ministries of this church is working in your life. My goodness, that puts fuel in my heart to just keep on keeping on. So praise God for that, and we appreciate you. And then what did I say? Invite. All right, want to invite you. Always want to do a personal invite before one of these take place, and that's our Discover Schindler class uh, next Sunday at 5 p.m. One of our church members' homes will have a class. Uh, it's for I've seen a lot of new faces here, which we are uh, really excited about. Uh, and we have a class for you to come if you're interested in becoming a member of our church or just interested in learning more about our church. That class is for you. We'll eat a meal together. We'll hang out. We'll fellowship. We'll share with you about who we are at Schindler Drive Baptist Church, and we'll learn more about you. Sign up for that today out in the concourse at the Welcome Station. So there you go. Three thank yous and an invite. Let's jump into this this morning. So we're going to continue our Old Testament series this morning called The Gospel Thread. As we've been seeing how the Old Testament is filled with real life stories that happen that are all telling one big story. And that one big story is God reconciling a, all broken things in a sin-cursed world back to himself through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're walking through scripture and we're seeing Jesus, how Jesus is on every page. The cross is on every page. The gospel is on every page. And we can't ever get tired of the gospel. All right. Ever get over what Jesus has done in our life. And so even this morning, this is going to feel like some basic gospel truths. Right. And, uh, and we're these are truths that we can't afford to get away from. You might be thinking we're going to continue to talk about this. We can't afford to get away from it. All right. I shared last week that this has been a, an interesting year and a half. A lot of folks have dealt with all kinds of different emotions, difficulties. Uh, a lot of people feel like they're in a season of spiritual dryness, right? And I think sometimes we overcomplicate what may be the thing that can get you out of that place. And it's you once again marveling and not getting over what happened to you at the cross. Remembering grace, what grace has done in your life. Remembering what is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's what this series is meant to do. And we're going to go through the Old Testament and see how it all points uh, to that. Last week we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We looked at a gospel story there at the beginning of King David's reign. David's life 
and his reign and that kingdom that he established is a very important part of God's word. It's key in understanding uh, the uh, redemption line of the storyline of redemption throughout the Old Testament because it points in some really clear ways to the messianic kingdom to come. But you learn that David isn't the king that we need. David is a, a sinful man. You know, you uh, get to the end of his reign and it ends ugly. In some ways, it ends the same way Saul's ended uh, with the ugliness in his family. And it's another story that leaves you longing for a better king. Well, you get in the first and second kings, which really in the beginning was when it was written, was all written on one scroll, the book of Kings, but we've divided it into two sections. But it's all about kings that followed King David. All right, under uh, the rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom, the kingdom uh, that was unified under King David's reign uh, splits into two rival kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judea. And, uh, and then uh, a lot of first kings and second kings is a lot of going back and forth following the different reigns of those different kings. In each of those kingdoms, there's 20 successive kings. All right, uh, out of all the kings in the northern kingdom, you know how many kings uh, were good? Zero. In the south, I think it was eight out of 20 that were good. So the, the uh, you know, not good stats there, all right? But again, these are times that are dark times that are reminding us that there's a greater king that we need. And this is another dark season in scripture that you read. But as you walk through this dark season that's laid out in scripture, you keep getting, the, you keep getting this truth that there's a God who's going to keep his promise. There's a God who's not going to give up on a stubborn people. There's a God who's going to keep the promise that he made in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. The promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And he, he's keeping that promise in First and Second Kings through these leaders that he raises up called prophets. These aren't fortune tellers. These are the mouthpieces of God. They are the spokesperson of God to the people of God. And uh, there were uh, a lot of well-known prophets. Most of the well-known prophets are in the northern kingdom. And the most prominent of the prophets in the northern kingdom were Elijah and his disciple Elisha, who spent their lives doing what prophets were called to do, faithfully calling out Israel's bad kings when they get in idolatry or uh, inflict acts of injustice. And they were constantly reminding God's people of the covenant, keeping people that they were called to be. Ultimately, you see at the end of, I'll go ahead and tell you the end of First and Second Kings, you see that they ultimately are unsuccessful in turning Israel back from their apostasy. Hence the Babylonian captivity that's going to happen at the end of Second Kings. But along the way through First and Second Kings, you get these glimmers of hope. These glimmers of hope of a God who is not going to give up on his people through these prophets. And so what we're going to do, it's a big picture of what's kind of happening here in the Old Testament. We're going to dive down into this incident that happens in the ninth century BC in the life of the prophet Elisha. All right. Whose life pointed to Jesus in a lot of different ways, but uniquely pointed to Jesus in his miracle ministry. He did a lot of miracles of kindness, some like increasing a widow's supply of uh, oil, uh, raising the Shunammite son from the dead, multiplying loaves of bread. Does that sound familiar? Pointing to Christ. But it's the healing of a powerful man in Second Kings chapter 5 that gives us the clearest picture of the gospel in his life, in Elisha's life. And it may be where we see the gospel thread running through these verses right here in the clearest and most vivid ways than any story in the Old Testament. It's an amazing story. So stand with your Bibles open, Second Kings chapter 5. Beginning to read in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. 
And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, uh, would that my Lord, talking about Naaman, were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he'd cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, who was the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will, spend, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, uh, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, you know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And so there seems to be a little confusion about where the source of the healing is going to come from. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes off, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the door seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over a place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, that's just a fun word to say, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word from the prophet that he's spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash him, be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like flesh, the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Would you have a seat as I pray? Lord, I pray that we will never get over what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. As your son is there in our place, absorbing the judgment we deserved. We thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. We thank you for salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would baffle us once again at how amazing your grace is this morning. By just simply looking at the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three really important, simple, straightforward, direct things about the gospel that we find in this passage this morning. And the first thing we're going to see is this. We see in this story an incurable condition that we must own. An incurable condition to own. So we're introduced to a man named Naaman who, he's living a good life. He's living in a nice place. Damascus at that time in the ancient world was a nice place to live. Beautiful scenery, rivers flowing out the top of the mountains of Lebanon, coming down and making the land fertile. It was a beautiful place and it was a good place to call home. And what it makes a place like that a better place to live is when you know some people. And Naaman knew some people. He was well-known, well-liked, well-connected, wealthy. He was a well-respected warrior, top uh, commander of the Syrian army, think VP of the nation, right? He's been surfing this wave of impressive military success. And I think it's uh, important to, to note there that he's not aware that this military success is actually the providential hand of God at work. Anytime there's judgment falling on God's people, God's behind that. He's allowing those things to happen because the stubborn people of Israel aren't being obedient uh, voluntarily. So he's uh, allowing captivities to happen, allowing judgments to happen. And, you know, uh, you know, the Syrian commander, he's getting a lot of victory and he doesn't know that necessarily that God's given that to him. So he's, you know, he's glorying in his own strength, in his own, in his own wisdom, in his own military achievement. And, uh, but he looks like a guy who has it all, right? He's a guy who's living the good life on top of the world. 
Everything that any body at that time living would say you needed to find happiness, right? And yet one day he takes off his armor and he sees a spot. And in that moment when he sees this spot, all the fame, all the power, all the achievement, all the victories, all the riches, all of that immediately doesn't matter anymore. Because this is the spot of death. And that last line in verse 1 Breaks it down like this. It says, he was a great man in high favor, given victory, a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. That's a giant exception clause right now there, right? That's a big conjunction. But Naaman was a leper. It overshadows everything else in his life. It was a death sentence. You know, leprosy. Then it's, it's terminal. It's a contagious skin disease. Begins evidently with a white flaky spot on your skin, but it's pervasive. It spreads. You begin to develop boils all over your body. Raw flesh begins to be exposed in different places. Your nerve endings begin to deaden. Starts killing off your extremities. Literally, your fingers begin to fall off. Your toes begin to fall. Not a pretty picture, right? Not a pretty picture. Make you lose your appetite for lunch. There seems to be an obsession right now with uh, this time of year with movies that depict like monstrous type creatures walking around, zombie creatures walking around looking like something that I just described. This is a real life version of that. All right. Somebody who in real life people couldn't stomach to look at and would definitely run from. If there were a monster, you were labeled an untouchable. You would... By law, I have to shout unclean. When you came within 30 feet of someone in Israel, you were shunned. You were put outside the city. When they saw you had the spot and they put you outside the city where you lived in isolation for 10 or 15 years until you died. Being a leopard was leper, not a leopard, right? A leper. I did that in the first service too. Let's just get that right. Leper was a terrible experience. It was a terrible existence. And here's a man, think about it, who's reached the pinnacle of success. He's got the world by the tail. He has everything. Everybody thinks you need to be happy. People serving him. He's a celebrity. But you know how much any of that matters now that he knows that he's got the spot zero. And you know how much any of that is going to help him solve the biggest problem now in his life? Zero. And so why are we reading this? Why is this vivid picture laid before us of this man with leprosy. What's much like last week's passage. It's here to show us something about ourselves. As we read this story, we don't jump to the conclusion that we're Elisha. We actually see that God's word goes to great length to make sure in narratives like this, we understand that we're guys, we're people like Naaman. We need to realize that we're the leper. Leprosy throughout God's word is a metaphor used in scripture to to communicate and to illustrate and to be a picture of the terminal spiritual sickness all of us live with called sin that we're born with, right? That's a universal problem. And this story is important because this is a powerful man with this problem. This is a powerful man who is helpless and hopeless in a condition called leprosy, right? It's a powerfully sobering picture right here that shows us that everybody's got it. Everybody's got the disease. Everybody's infected by it. You can go into the slums of the most impoverished area of the most impoverished third world nation, uh, third world country in the world, or you can go into the mansions of Hollywood and you can sit down with some of the most powerful people who have it all, have the fame. You can, they can list out their accomplishments and you can look at how much wealth they have and all that they've achieved. But no matter who you are, no matter how high on the ladder of success you have climbed, You got the spot. We all do. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's difficult news for people to own. That is difficult news for people to admit about themselves. Getting somebody to admit that things are wrong, getting people to admit that things are broken, is, isn't that difficult, right? Getting people to admit that they struggle with things like fear, where they struggle with things like anxiety and regret and loneliness and anger and jealousy and discontentment and relation problems, all those things. It isn't hard to get people to admit that there's a brokenness in this world and there's a level of brokenness in their life. It's just getting people to stop and, and long enough to think about why we all wrestle with those things. That's, that's the difficulty. Why do we experience anxiousness? Why do we experience fear? Why do we experience failed relationships and unhappiness? And the list could go on. Why? I mean, think about in our city. Shouldn't, shouldn't, we, be, shouldn't we be happy in a city that we live in? Let me, just, let me just make my argument. I mean, like Damascus, you know, we live in the Sunshine State. We live in Jacksonville. You can go find your spot on the beach if it's a nice day. There's enough beach to find a little spot where you can just be by yourself. You like being by yourself. You can go to the park. There's things that you can do just to spend your time leisurely and enjoy yourself. You can drive through the city. You can find places to work. There's a lot of people needing people to work right now, right? You can drive throughout town and and see nice homes that people can live in. You can access good medical care. We're not going to argue about that right now, but compared to most of the rest of the world, we have great access to good medical care. We are blessed to live in, in one of the most advanced, technologically advanced societies ever. We don't stop enough and think about that. If you stopped this morning and thought about the fact that you carried in with you, most of you, a supercomputer called a smartphone, right? You get to live in the generation that that is something that you get to enjoy, right? We live pretty convenient lives. We live in an advanced city. We enjoy beautiful, I mean, the weather this weekend, is it not nice? Beautiful Florida Fall weather, it's, hopefully it sticks around a little bit. But I, I, thought, I went to college out of state, and it's funny, when people find, I lived in Florida my entire life, many of you have too. When you talk to people outside of Florida, they're like, you live in Florida, you live that close to the beach? Wow. I mean, if, if I live there, and you kind of get this sense in their tone, like, if I live there, then I, would, I would like go up a few notches on the happiness meter. I would be a little more happy, right? And it's a nice place to live, right? You live in Jacksonville. I live in Jacksonville. Would you say that happiness is the song people are humming in rush hour traffic on Monday morning in Jacksonville? No. Why? Because no matter where you live, no matter how much money you have, no matter how advanced the technology is or convenient things are, no matter how nice the weather is, is there still not a contentment that people's souls are trying to find that they can't quite find? Is there not a value and a happiness that people are trying to chase through relationships, through possessions, through riches? Happiness that you want, but you just can't seem to chase down and get your hands around. Is there not a longing for something more within humanity that we know is in our own hearts? C.S. Lewis helps us understand why that is. He, here's what he says is going on. He says, here's the problem. And think about this. He says, you, as a human being, are born into this world with a wandering, broken, searching soul that is continuously longing for a fragrance that you've never smelt, for a song that you have never heard, for a place that you've never visited. And he explains that longing comes from the reality that you weren't made for this world. You were made for a different place. 
You were made for a place called Eden, a place where you can enjoy and delight in an unbroken relationship with God, a place where you can experience pure joy, where you can experience pure acceptance and enjoyment in an unhindered fellowship with God. But it's a place you cannot go. It's a place that you've been banished from, a place that you've been cast out of. Why? Because you're a spiritual leper. Adam and Eve, sin, a curse falls on the world and the disease of sin in them has been passed on to you and it's been passed on to me. And just like physical leprosy, there's no ability through any human resource to provide an antidote or cure for it. So it is with our spiritual condition. And you die in your condition of spiritual leprosy. Listen, you're banished forever for all of eternity. From existing in the presence of God in a place called hell. And you say, is that serious? Here we go. Hell talk. Really? Okay, hold on a second. We're still going with that? We're still going with it? It's that serious, right? I mean, I know something's broken. I'm with, I was with you there. Anxiousness, fear, broken relationships, problems, right? I, I'm with you there. But, but come on, we're, we're going to go that deep here this morning, right? I, I came to church looking for some positive, encouraging K-love. Really? We're going to go this route this morning? Listen, there is some positive, there is some encouraging gospel truth in this story. Listen, but you can't be gripped by how awesome that truth is until you're gripped by how indescribably bad the news is for you. And listen, God's word alone provides the proper diagnosis for the problem of brokenness within the human heart. It's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. I've shared this story with you before, but reruns are good sometimes. So I'm going to share it again. So Rebecca and I were on a ski trip uh, several years ago, and there we are on the slopes. It was the last run of the day, and she hit a patch of ice and uh, twisted her knee and fell down, and I could tell she was in a lot of pain. And I don't know, those, those little rangers in the red suits, those guys, they're like looking for an accident. It was like there were five seconds, those guys are coming out of the trees everywhere. Do you need some help? Do you need some help? It was great. It was like almost too good, right? And we had seen some people get, it was a little small ski resort. So when you get brought down on that sled, the medic sled, everybody's watching. It's a spectacle. And I could tell she, she did not want to go down on that sled. And she, she said, I don't want to go. And I'm trying to reason. I'm like, maybe we, you know, and the guys are like, you know, it looks bad. And she grabs me by the collar and brings me in and goes, I'm not going down on that sled. <laughs> it's a little side of her I hadn't seen come out before. It's like, yes, ma'am. I think I just fell in love with you all over again. It's a warrior coming out there. And I turned around and said, gosh, she ain't going, yeah, we're good. You guys go. And they skied away. And she got up in one leg, skied down the rest of that mountain. And, uh, and we got her into the van. We get her down to Jacksonville. We get her back to a specialist. And long story short, they come in after doing an MRI. And they say, this is bad news. We thought it was bad. We didn't know it was this bad. They said she not only has completely torn her ACL, torn her meniscus, and broken her leg. Like, and that woman skied down that thing without being in the sled. My woman. You know what we didn't do? We didn't argue with him. Hold on a second. Just get up. Let's get out of here. No, because there was a tool there that was able to give us an idea of what was down beneath the surface that we couldn't see. And so it is with the Bible. So it is with the law of God. 
The Bible is the only spiritual MRI machine that can look down at our hearts and to see what's truly there and give us an explanation. You know what? It sees sin. And there's different ways that the Bible communicates in different pictures and different metaphors. And you know what this, this passage right here, this story is telling us? It's saying, hey, God's word is looking down into your soul and into your life. And it's not just like, hey, things are just a little broken and you can kind of fix yourself. You're a spiritual leper. Naaman is in touch with that desperate need and his inability to do anything about it. And the question is, are you this morning? Number two, an incredible message of grace to receive. An incredible message of grace to receive. Well, a Hebrew girl, a slave girl, it says, who worked for Naaman's wife, she comes one day and she, she, she just, it's almost like a, you get the sense that it was just in passing. But she says, man, I wish he could get over to Elisha. He, Elisha could, could get him the help that he really, really needs. And so, the wife shares this with Naaman and, and they, Naaman goes to the king of Syria and, and the king of Syria says, yeah, man, let's, I'll help you. And, you know, they're being kingly. They're going to handle everything, you know, at the, you know, the top tier of political power. So he's going to write the God letter. So you see some of that happening right here. But he begins to pack for this trip and he gets this royal letter from Syria that's going to ask the king of Israel to help him out. He begins to load up his wagon with all of this treasure. And you get an idea from the passage that this is only a fraction of how much wealth that Naaman had access to. But he loads it up with 900 pounds of gold and silver. It says that he takes 10 changes of clothes. You might be going, well, that's a strange thing. I didn't really need to know how he packs for a trip like this. But that actually was a, a, a kind of standard gift in those days. A clothes, the kind of clothes that he would have taken, like red carpet type ceremonial garb. It was a way that you would go and show appreciation to a neighboring nation. Anyway, that's the way that they would gift each other. But what he's doing, don't miss the big picture, is he's trying to do everything he can in his power. He still doesn't understand grace. He still doesn't understand how he's going to get healed. But he's doing everything in his power to position himself to access this power. He's heard about this prophet, and this prophet has access to in Israel. So he rolls into town, rolls into Israel in royal fashion with some style, with some pomp, with some flash, and with a bunch of money because he's going to buy his miracle. And he goes into the palace, and the king of Israel reads the letter. From the king of Syria and the king of Israel, remember, bad kings, he's so out of touch with God. He, he's not even aware, it sounds like, you know, of the type of ministry that Elisha's doing and his faith in that type of ministry. He's not a godly king. And he, he reads the letter and thinks that this is talking about him. He's like, I don't have the ability to, to save this guy. I don't have the ability to cure someone of leprosy. And then, he, then all of a sudden he thinks, oh, oh my gosh, this is a trick. The king of Syria is trying to come and he's asking me to do a task that I can't do so that he can pick a fight with us and beat us up again. So it says he tears his clothes and Elisha catches wind of all of this and he sends word and he's like, man, why are you tearing your clothes, man? You're going to Hulk Hogan, going crazy, tearing your shirt off in the palace. Listen, send him to me. Send the Syrian to me so that he will know God is at work in Israel. So Naaman punches in the address of Elisha, this backwoods preacher into his maps app and he loads up his chariots and has all of his gold, all of his treasure, all of his servants, all of their horses and they begin with their entourage to move down the back country of Israel looking for this prophet named Elisha's house. I love this part of the story. I picture this scene in your mind. I love it. Elisha's a backwoods preacher living out in the sticks and here comes this big commander, this royal military commander, Naaman. Coming to pay for his miracle. Coming to use his power to find his healing. And he comes roaring down this dirt road looking for Elisha's house. Imagine it like this. Have you ever been in town when the presidential motorcade comes through? 
right? Even for the vice president, it's intimidating. It's powerful, right? It's a, it's a show of power, shutting down the highway, shutting down the roads. So think about the presidential motorcades in Jacksonville. And for some reason, just use your imagination, decides to go out into the sticks of Middleburg and down some dirt road, back to some small house and he pulls into the driveway. That's the moment that's happening right here. And Elisha's in that little house. Maybe he's at the kitchen table, Studying for a sermon coming up. Maybe he's at the kitchen table eating a sandwich. Maybe he's on the couch watching some sports center. We don't know. He didn't go out to, he didn't go out to meet these guys. He sees them pull up and he sends out a servant. So he, onto the stage of scripture walks this servant who walks out and meets these guys in the driveway, this powerful man. He's like, hi, I'm Elisha's servant. Uh, Elisha's a little tied up this afternoon. But uh, let's see here. He wrote me a note. He says, go and wash um, in the Jordan. Looks like you guys, some of you guys are going swimming here and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. I'm not sure what that means. That's the note I'm supposed to give you. God bless you guys. Have a good day. Now you can imagine Naaman being a guy who walks into a place expecting people to stand up and show him respect. He's offended by this. He's offended by this. But you know what I think? I think God's beginning to use ways to humble Naaman. And if the way that Elisha didn't go out and greet him in the proper way, doesn't offend or doesn't humble him. The nature of the message that's delivered to him will. See, it seems like Naaman's rolling into town with a preconceived idea of what his miracle is going to look like. Maybe he deserves some kind of big production, right? He, he's seen, he, maybe he's heard about what happens in 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah's on Mount Carmel. He takes on 450 prophets of Baal and there's fire that comes out of heaven. It comes in and swallows up that water-soaked altar. Maybe he's heard about some of these things and he's walking, he's wanting his version of that. Or at least give me a task. Give me something hard to do, a mountain to scale. And I'll come back. We have a ceremony and you can come meet me and tell me that I did what you were, that I was supposed to do. And you can wave your hand, your, your magic prophet hand over my life and say some words and bada bing, bada boom, I can be healed. You got to be kidding me, name and Samuel. You telling me I came all this way with all of this stuff for you to tell me to go down to that murky, dirty creek you call a river and take a bath? I could, have gone to, I could have gone to a few rivers around where I live in Damascus that are much better than your river. I could, have, I could have saved a lot of time if that's what I'm supposed to do. And here's what's happening here. Listen, it's a simple message that just sounds too foolish for this guy to believe could be real and valid. It seems too narrow. It seems too foolish for him to receive. And so Naaman's like, you know what? That sounds too foolish. It sounds too narrow. That does not make sense in my mind. Peace out. I'm gone. And so he takes his chariots and he begins to go down the road. But some of his servants, it's funny how the servants, not the ones in political, but not the ones, the kings in the highest places of power, the servants in this story are the ones who seem to have their head screwed on right. And the servant chases him down the road and stops and explains like, Naaman, take a deep breath. Remember, anger management, count backwards from 10. And explains that maybe simple's a good thing, Naaman. I mean, he didn't say do cartwheels across the desert and then scale a mountain and ride a lion and kill an alligator. He's giving you some, a simple you know, piece of instruction here. And you're so offended by what he's telling you to do. You're missing what... He says that the prophet of God says will happen in your life if you do it. I mean, in other words, just drop your pride and do it. Just drop your pride and go down to the river. Just drop your pride and go. And Naaman makes a small decision. He looks at his servant. He makes a small decision that will change his life forever. He turns the chariot around and he goes to the river. 
He turns the chariot around and he goes down the river and he steps in the water and he dips one time, two times, nothing. Three times, four times, nothing. Five, six, nothing. I wonder if he's wrestling with doubt in that moment as the leprosy is still there, but he goes down, he bends his knees in faith that seventh time and comes up and it says he comes out of the water, not just leprosy free, if you notice, with new skin. And his life is forever changed. His life is forever changed. Why? Because he dropped his pride and received with humility a message that sounded to the rest of the world as if it was foolish. It sounded to the rest of the world too simple. And yet it was life saving. So receiving the instructions from Elijah for Naaman, it took a large amount of humility. And listen, receiving our cure for spiritual leprosy takes a large amount of humility. First, you have to Admit that you're a spiritual leper. And then you have to embrace a message that the majority of the world is going to look at. And as Paul says, it's going to call foolishness. The cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. Admitting that you're a spiritual leper and then accepting and embracing what a carpenter from Nazareth, a no-name town called Nazareth, did 2,000 years ago on a cross, accepting that is the only way for your terminally sin-sick soul to be healed. You know what our pride does? When we hear that message, it rejects it. Our pride rejects that message. Our natural intellect heckles a claim like that. Our pride hates the idea and rejects the truth claim that it's absolutely impossible for me to make myself acceptable before a holy God. It, It rejects the truth claim that all the power and money and even religious deeds in the world is powerless to save a soul. But you're telling me, maybe you're here this morning, And you're like, you're telling me my only hope is to look to the cross and to put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for healing and the forgiveness of my sins. It feels too simple. It feels too embarrassing. It feels too primitive. It feels too narrow. It feels too uncultured. It feels too unscientific. It can't be that simple. Okay, Naaman. Okay, Naaman. Listen, never forget this. The gospel is remarkably powerful and remarkably simple to understand. Admit you have the disease, drop your pride, go down to the river and dip and trust in Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. No other name, no other way. It can't be cured through man's wisdom. It can't be cured through man's strength. It can't be cured through your upbringing. It can't be cured through church attendance. It can't be cured through religion. All of that is worthless in the sight of God. He saves by grace alone. You say, but I'm good. Maybe your pride rejects this. I'm good. I don't need it. I'll figure out a way. There's no way I'm that broken. I'll figure a way somehow on my path that I'm taking in life to get to the end of life and have built up a good enough resume for God. Maybe he's grading on a curb to let me in to heaven. And I would say this, you take a mop and a mop bucket and you go out to the beach this afternoon to that big puddle we call the Atlantic Ocean, and you try to clean that mess up. That doesn't adequately illustrate the futility of you trying to rid your life of the leprosy that inflicts it. Your only hope is to go to the river. Your only hope is to go to the living water named Jesus Christ who died for you, and when you dip, all who are plunged beneath that flood of the blood of Jesus Christ, walk away clean, walk away new, 
You know, Naaman follows these instructions and that really, that, that word sums up everything that happens as he comes out of that water, the word new. It's the same with us, 1 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, here's what sums up your life when you come to that river and you step out, you're new. A new life, a new status, a new start, a new identity, a new family. New unbroken fellowship with the God of this universe who sent his son to die on the cross for you and raise from the dead so that you could go from being banished to being brought into the family of God as a son or daughter of the king. New identity, new family. And you know what that gives you? That identity gives you a new trajectory. You have to run around in the world figuring out who you are. You have to run. Everybody's in an identity crisis. A Christian, you should not be in an identity crisis. The Bible lays out who you are, and then guess what you do? You just live out the description of who God says you are. New trajectory in life, new purpose, new outlook, new desires, a new heart. Notice that he just doesn't get a new, he just doesn't get a new skin. He gets a new heart. The most important thing Naaman gets that day in the River Jordan when he walks out is a new heart. And you can continue to read the story. I encourage you to do that this week for some homework. You continue to read that story and you see a man who has a transformed life. He didn't have it all together. It's got quite comical to read because he's like a baby Christian. He can't seem to figure things out. And Elisha just ends up going, hey, hey, go in peace. You know, you're good. He's kind of walking a little wobbly, but he has a, tr- he's a heart that's beginning to be transformed by the gospel. His mind about God has changed. He's gone from a polytheistic pagan Syrian to a worshiper of the one and only true God. Comes out of the river, then begins to live a life of gospel-fueled obedience. Notice how this story shows us the right order there. This story shows us the difference between religion-driven obedience and gospel-driven obedience. Religion says, hey, you do these things and you'll be accepted. The gospel says, you're accepted, now do these things. And this story is a reminder, hey, to all of us, I know much of this is to those who don't know Christ this morning, But again, there should be a marveling in the hearts of those who do. And this is a reminder here in the story that all believe for all believers that real faith produces change in obedience. Jesus is not interested in being anything less than the king of your life. He's brought you into that river. He saved your soul. He's washed away the leprosy. He's your savior. Hey, but he's also intending to be your Lord. There's all kinds of changes that happen in the life of a believer. All kind of changes, kind of changes that happen in the life of name, but one of the main changes that happen in our life, and it's this final point, it's going to be very quick, is this. And we learn it in this final point, it's this, an improbable messenger of God to imitate. We see an incurable condition to own. We see an incredible message of grace to receive. We see an improbable messenger of God to imitate. You're like, yeah, I see it. Elisha, he's a messenger of God, faithful man of God. Let's go home. Amen. Let's go eat. That's not who I'm going to focus on here. Have you stopped and thought about how Naaman experienced the power of God through the prophet Elisha? We know it's God at work here ultimately, but the means by which God uses to get this thing moving. And in the background, overlooked Hebrew slave girl. Who's there as a result of a Syrian raid. Think about that. She's in the house of Naaman as a result of a Syrian raid. Ripped away from her family. Who, all, as far as we know, could be dead. Probably has no plans to ever return back to her homeland. Her life's stolen from her. Probably 13 or 14 years old. Now she's a slave in the house of Naaman. Now, if she's a product of, or if this is the result of her getting there as a, as a slave because of a Syrian raid, well, as the top commander of the Syrian, 
Who's, who was responsible for that raid? Naaman. You'd expect her to be bitter. You'd expect her to be upset. You'd expect her to be planning some, some pay. revenge makes sense, right? We, we love movies about revenge. We love TV shows about revenge. We'd expect her to take the, the path of Inigo Montoya. You know why Inigo Montoya? <laughs> Princess Bride, if you don't know, find out. His father is killed when he's very young and he trains all of his life to be a master swordsman so that one day he can stand before the killer of his father and say, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. Terrible impression. Great movie. Could you blame her for having that kind of mindset? Could you? I mean, th- th- what makes sense in this story is she's in her quarters doing sit-ups and push-ups and shadow boxing, trying to find her moment to take out Naaman. Or at least to just step back and let him die. Killed my family, ripped me away from my country. But she doesn't. She could have been unforgiving. She could have been bitter. She could have been spiteful and angry, but she hasn't let her circumstances to cause her to abandon her faith in her God and the mission that he's called her to in all circumstances. This is the kind of work the gospel does in us. It gives us a heart of compassion for people, even our enemies. Let me ask you, do you need to forgive somebody this morning? Do you, do you need to, to take a step where bitterness is no longer finding a place, a home in your heart this morning? As simple as the instructions that Elisha gave Naaman to go down to the river, I would say go to the cross and let go. See Christ there on the cross letting you off the hook multiple times throughout your life. And by the grace of God, the power of the gospel, let go of the feelings of wanting revenge, the feelings of bitterness, and the feelings of unforgiveness towards somebody who has hurt you. What a wonderful example she is of how the grace of God should impact our life, should release our grip on grudges that we hold and the right sometimes we claim for revenge. And you know what it creates in her? It creates, it, it, God's grace has created in her a desire to tell everybody else where that river's at to tell everybody else where they can experience that same amount of grace. That's what, that's what the gospel truly does. The gospel, when your life has collided with the gospel, you will spend the rest of your life telling everybody else where to find that grace that you've tasted. Listen, we've been to the river of, we've come out clean. We've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we go through the rest of our lives seeing anybody we come in contact with, listen, as people who are spiritual lepers, who can't escape that disease, listen, but can't outrun the transformative grace of Jesus Christ. If they'll come to the river. And listen, notice this small character in the story, this lowly position as a slave girl, don't under, it seems like an insignificant little statement she makes. Don't underestimate the power of pointing people to that river in the smallest of ways. You never know how God will use it. She had no idea the impact that she'd have for eternity. One day you'd be able to meet this Hebrew slave girl. She had no idea. She had no idea the, what, what would happen with, with, with Naaman. I believe the way that it happened. Have no idea how that story surely would spread across those kingdoms. How that story would be canonized right here in the scriptures. 
She had no idea that the Messiah that she would have sung about and looked forward to King Jesus, that she wouldn't be alive when he walked this planet, would one day walk the planet Jesus. And in Luke chapter four and verse 27, Jesus, the son of God, God in flesh, he references the miracle of Naaman. And it all goes back to that little act, that little statement. I wish, I wish he could go to Elisha. I wish that he could go to the place where I know he could be healed. Don't underestimate how God can use your faithfulness this week in the small, daily, gospel-fueled acts of obedience. Specifically moments that you point people to Christ. Some of you teach a small group here, and there's weeks that you come and it maybe feels... Like what you're doing is insignificant. It maybe feels like you're spitting in the wind. It maybe feels thankless. It's not. The, the story, remember this girl. Double down on being faithful. It matters. Listen, you, you may think that that stubborn family member, a friend that's around you, that you've tried to point to Jesus. You, you, you may wonder if they're ever going to be saved. Remember this girl who's around this pagan, hard-hearted Syrian man called Naaman. God placed her there to point him to the river. God's placed you in the life of that person to point them to Jesus. Don't underestimate the power of just even a small word of kindness, a small word of, of, of encouragement in the name of Jesus. Don't underestimate the, don't ever underestimate going to lunch today and talking to a waitress or a waiter of leaving a tip that maybe that person didn't deserve and leaving a note in the name of Jesus and letting them know that Jesus loves them. Maybe that'll help them have a better day. No, like, don't underestimate the power of inviting somebody to church, of praying for a sick neighbor, of a smile in the name of Jesus, taking a neighbor food when they need food. And don't go ask them. Everybody says they don't need nothing when you ask them. Just go drop it off at the doorstep. They may not like it, but they'll remember you putting forth the effort to show them some love in the name of Jesus. Moms, days get busy. Being a mom can sometimes be thankless. Long days, difficult circumstances, you keep being faithful. You keep pointing those kids to Jesus Christ. Every seed that you plant matters. Remember this Hebrew girl. Dads, you remember, hey, past is the past. You move forward. You keep pointing your kids to Jesus. You keep pointing them to that river. You keep pointing them to gospel truth. Day in and day out, those little acts matter. Students, when you go to school, what an incredible mission field. God's positioned you there in those classrooms, in that hallway for the purpose of pointing those other students to Jesus Christ. Every small little point you make to that river matters. How will you point people this week in the ordinary rhythms of your life to Jesus Christ? She simply opened her mouth. Hey, she simply opened her mouth in what seemed to be an unimportant moment. She's not on a stage. She's not behind a microphone. She just simply says, I wish he could go see Elisha and look at how God used it. A lot of people will say things like, I wish God would use me in big ways. I wish God would, and that's an okay thing to say. I wish God would use my life in a great way. I wish when I get to the end of my life that somebody will stand up in the front of a service somewhere and just say, man, this person, they did great things for God. How many small things are you doing for God right now? Day in. And day out, faithful, small acts of obedience. Keep planting. Keep planting gospel seeds. 
You never know how God may be glorified through that. That's the legacy of this small, humble evangelist. Story of name is a crystal clear picture of the gospel. Do you see your sin here? Do you see your sin here? Do you see your spiritual leper? Have you cried out to God for mercy at the foot of the cross and thrown the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ, believing he lived the life that you couldn't live and died the death that you deserve to die and he rose from the dead and he's the only way for salvation. He's the only way to find healing. He's the only way to have forgiveness. He's the only way to step back into a right relationship with God. You can this morning. If you have, are you finding ways like the faithful servant girl to tell people about Jesus? As we continue through this series, may we never stop being baffled by the grace of God. May we never stop marveling at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we never stop telling people where they can find that life by pointing them to the river. Let's pray. Now, as you bow your head and close your eyes, stay tuned in because I want to address a few things specifically for our response time. Maybe you need to be saved this morning. I'm going to be real simple like Elijah. Come to the river. May feel simple, may feel foolish, may feel narrow. The only place where the ache of your heart, where the longings of your soul can be satisfied. I'll be down front. I'll be ready to receive you. If you just come and say, I'm ready to come to Jesus, I'd love to pray with you and talk to you. I want to say something very specific right here. Maybe you're here this morning with a great need. It could be sickness. It could be a relational problem. It could be an issue in your family with a child who's making bad decisions. It could be an addiction in your own life. Again, it could be physical. I want you to know God cares about meeting that need, but I want, to, I want to encourage you to think about something. What if that spot, whatever that is, is in your life? What if it's there to put you in tune with a deeper spot? Is that not what happens in the life of Naaman? His problem was not leprosy. His problem was his heart. He needs more than new skin. He needed a new heart. My goodness, could God be allowing these things to happen in your life to bring you to a point of your greatest need being met. And then once that need's met, then you circle back around to those needs. And he's a God who you can cast all your anxieties on him. So if, if that greatest need has been met and you're saved, you may be a person here with great needs this morning. Cast your anxieties on him. Come to him and lift your eyes to him. Ask him to meet those needs. He hears your prayers. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to join the church. Hey, maybe, you, maybe you've been to the water, but you just kind of lost your way. In what ways are you living in a kingless way right now? Trying to buck God's authority. He's your savior. Are you living like he's your Lord? I'll trust the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. You take the step of faith you need to take this morning. Hey, let's respond. Let's really respond this morning. Maybe it's to stand and sing. But maybe it's to come and get somebody to pray for you. Maybe it's to come and pray at this altar. You respond in the way the Holy Spirit's leading you.